Uh, Let's pray. Father in heaven, I simply ask that you would guide our time this morning as we look into your word. May we truly spend time engaging with one another as brothers and sisters under your loving, watchful care as our Father. In Christ's name, amen. You know, the classroom dynamics here, this is, there's, there's got to be, there's got to be something that goes on where some of you insist on being back, back, back. You can't, you, can you be back there and read this? Yes. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a long 45 minutes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just a... I guess that's what happens when we're family and not a formal classroom. Is that... Can I look at it that way? Is that okay? Does that help me at all? Just a quick look at where we've been... Gary, did you guys get the handouts? Okay. It must be a sign. I just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Just a quick review of where we've been. Where are you going to go with that? Well, I'm going to hold it up there. Okay. Yeah. For a while. Okay. We start out by looking at what Scripture is. It's the Word of God. It's given to us. Uh, uh, we looked at different words, especially what appears in Psalm 119, where Scripture is referred to as testimony or precepts or statutes, law. You know, these these words that all are synonymous, but all have slightly different meanings. But the they all carry the idea that they need to be obeyed, that God's testimonies are to be obeyed. Um, real quick, like, as an example of that, Isaiah, uh, I just thought of this the other day when I was reading, Isaiah 56, verse 1. Talk about Scripture being God's testimony. And God revealing to us, telling us about himself, but it also carries commandments and expectations for us. And Isaiah 56, 1 says, Thus saith the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is, this verse 2, Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So those two verses contain both a promise and a commandment. And this is you know, God's testimony to us. My, my salvation will come. My righteousness will be revealed. And what I expect of you is to keep the Sabbath, not profane it, and keep your hands from doing evil. So just an example of, you know, it's easy to think, well, yeah, I find a lot of laws, but what else am I looking at when I come to Scripture? 
Um, last week we looked at uh, learning to think and live uh, as God's children with a number of quotes from a variety of authors that I've collected over the last year or so. You know, you've, you've got a handout that says week three on it, and I was going to give it to you last week, but this is week four, so I'm giving it to you week four. Uh, oops. Here. <laughs> um, just as a reminder, I've got the dictionary definition up there of uh, uh, the word filial meaning of or do from a son or a daughter, and then some of the synonyms. I read this to you last week, but now you've got it in front of you. Uh, paying particular attention to the quote, and this is, again, the, from the, into, uh, the introduction that the author wrote explaining why he's writing the book, Sons and the Son. As I reflect on Scripture concerning the doctrine of adoption, I pray that this writing treats the name of God his titles, his attributes, and his word in a holy and reverent fashion with a filial fidelity incumbent on one adopted in Christ Jesus. To that doxological end, I, an adopted son in the son, turned to an examination of adoption in Paul and his theology. What I've written down below there, just to remind you, the word adoption only occurs five times in the New Testament, and it's all Paul. Three of them are in Romans, one in Galatians, and one in Ephesians. But the theme of being God's children for the elect is a theme that runs all through Scripture. It, it isn't something that we get away from. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a significant factor, I believe, in how we approach Scripture. Um, so we're looking at, today we want to look at what it means to be better readers and uh, I've asked Dave to share a little bit about a book. There, there's, there's two things that I want us to think about. And Dave's got one book by Howard Hendricks. He's got two books. Uh, oh, no, How to Read. The other one's not Howard Hendricks. Um, my copy of Living by the Book says, Living by the Book, and at the bottom it says, The Art and Science of biblical reading. Is that what it is? Yes. And then when he's through talking about uh, those his books, um, I wanted to share just a little bit from Eugene Peterson's book titled Eat This Book. So Hendrickson says the art and science of Bible reading. And Peterson's uh, book, A Conversation in the Art of spiritual reading. So we've got these two themes, and we'll have a chance to interact about this, the art and science of biblical reading and the art of spiritual reading. And so I asked Dave if he would share a little bit about those books before we move on.
So, uh, <clears throat> some years ago, a good friend of ours gave us this book called Living by the Book, and uh, uh, it, it's been very beneficial. So, how many of you, New Year's, have like resolutions and things that you say, I'm, I'm going to do this this year? Yeah? Everybody kind of? How's that work for you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The wiser of us say, no, that's not, I'm not going to do that. Um, <clears throat> so what we've kind of talked about up to this point uh, really kind of focuses more on the motivation for reading and studying God's Word. And, and those are good things to talk about because we do have to have our heart right to be able to, to um, read the, the Word of God and, and to, to want to read the Word of God. But there's kind of another aspect that I think we haven't really talked about very much yet, and that's, it has to do with self-discipline. Anything that we want to do in life that uh, requires a regular practice means that we have to have the self-discipline to follow the motivation of our heart. <clears throat> now, there's lots of examples that we can look at about that. Um, I used to be a smoker, and the only way I could quit smoking was I had the motivation every day. I'd get up and think, I don't want to smoke anymore. I don't want to do this. But until I had the self-discipline to say, not going to do this anymore, and here's how, it didn't happen. So that self-discipline really, really is key. Um, And I I know that there are a lot of motivational speakers out there that will talk about all these things that you want to do to have this kind of desire or this kind of motivation for things you want to do in life, but it kind of comes down to the fact that you've got to be self-disciplined enough to tackle that thing that you want to change or do. Um, Excuse me. Like weeds in the garden, you know, they're not going to go away on their own. You might wish them to go away, but they won't until you start going out there pulling them and making a regular practice of that because they'll come back again. Um, Now, with self-discipline, it's helpful to have a method. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I remember training in the Army. Uh, <clears throat> I was just astounded at how much things stick in your mind the way that they train you because they have a method. And the method is fairly simple. You know, they, they would tell you something, they'd make you repeat it, and then you would put it into practice. And so th- there was that method that really, really worked. And, um, you know, soldiers have to live by that. And so that's, that's something we have to do. So um, <clears throat> this book, written by Howard G. Hendricks, if you ever get it, he's, he's passed away long ago, but uh, he's a character. He, he could have been a comedian. He's a funny guy. But um, he developed some really good ideas about how to uh, read and study the Word of God. Uh, he has a three-step approach. So there's that method again that says, here's a good way to do this. It's probably not the only way, but it certainly is a good way. And, uh, you know, he starts with observation, then he goes to interpretation, and then application. And so all of those things, those, those three things are kind of key to how that gets done. Within that, then, he has different um, uh, steps and, and uh, uh, things to pay attention to. That, that are helpful as you try to practice those. And with each chapter, or each um, method, <coughs> excuse me, uh, uh, of his approach, 
he has you practice it. He takes you through this in the book and he says, now, let's practice this. Starts with one verse and then he has you do a chapter and then he has you do uh, a kind of a, a longer approach. And by the time you're done with the book, you'll have a pretty good idea how to read and study the Word of God. He kind of wants to take you away from commentaries to begin with because, you know, you read a commentary and you say, well, that says this about this passage. But then you read another one because you think, well, I I wonder if there's any other thought about that. Well, oh, now this commentary says a different thing. So he says, read the Word of God for yourself first. Then you can go and, and do more research on that later on, but but it really, and, and we have to, of course, uh, a major part of this as we study and read the Word of God is to do it prayerfully uh, by the leading of the Spirit. Um, in one of the early chapters of the book, he says, he, he went to college as an English literature major, I think. That was his idea. He wanted to study English literature. And uh, he, he was a good student when he went into college, but he found that the first the first semester that he was there, he was failing. He was just, he was going to flunk out. And so one of his professors said to him, well, your problem is you don't know how to read. And he thought, what are you talking about? I know how to read. I can read just perfectly fine. Well, he didn't know how to read so that he could be analytical about what he was reading. And so his professor recommended that he read this book called How to Read a Book by Mortimer J. Adler. And, <clears throat> excuse me, in this day and age, you know, we have the Internet, and the media approach to that makes us less skilled at reading than we once were, or in the case of you young folks, maybe not as much as you could be or should be. And so I would highly recommend that you start with that so that you, you, you understand how to approach the, the, um, the, the task of reading a book, reading for understanding. And so... Uh, those two books are very, very helpful, and, and so uh, that's one. That it actually looks a bit different. This is an old copy, and so I think yours is a little more modern cover and so on. But, um, yeah, so that's, I think, what I had to say about that. The first one is called Living by the Book by Howard G. Hendricks. One other thought about that is uh, there are actually YouTubes of, of Howard Hendricks, and he, he takes you probably through what everything he covers in this book. So you can go that way, but I really recommend that you read the book because you can take notes. You can, you, you can go slower if you need to and say, wait, I don't think I understand that. Let me go back a bit. And um, I think it's a really good way to do it. But it is on YouTube, and you can find it, I think, doing that. I have a feeling that uh, the pastoral staff would also have additional books, too, that would be good guides helping us in Bible reading. There, got it. In fact, one book that I have at home, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, Gordon Stewart and, no, no, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Uh, takes you through learning to look at different aspects of uh, different styles of writing, whether it's a how to how to handle a proverb, how to handle poetry, 
how to handle proverbs or uh, books of history, uh, uh, learning to treat them differently. Pat had shared a um, a YouTube thing with a bunch of you, I guess, uh, that since Claire Ferguson had put out, and he had one little blurb on there about a four-minute blurb about reading scripture and one of his questions or something he pointed out was uh, for example the book of Ephesians you may know Ephesians 2 8 and 9 for by grace are you saved or you may have a good handle on uh, the the uh, armor of God but do you know why Ephesians was written recommending that you find out why the author wrote the book to start out with before, as a, as a starting point anyway, and burying yourself in the book. Okay, so the, the art and the science of Bible reading, learning how to do exegesis for yourself, is one aspect of being in the Word, or one aspect of reading Scripture and being in the Word. I wanted to share with you a few things from Eugene Peterson's book also. Uh, about spiritual reading, and it's easier if I just read it to you. Okay. What I mean to insist upon in writing this book is that spiritual writing or spirit source writing requires spiritual reading, a reading that honors words as holy, words as a basic means of forming an intricate web of relationship between God and the human, between all things visible uh, and invisible. And then he goes on to say this. It, uh, uh, readers who, uh, a reader who does not always remain bent over his pages, he often leans back and closes his eyes over a line as he has been reading again, and, it, and its meaning spreads through his blood. This is the kind of reading named by our ancestors no, I won't get into that. Often translated as spiritual reading. Reading that enters our souls as food, enters our stomachs, spreads through our blood and becomes holiness and love and wisdom. But that that idea of sometimes you read it and you sit back and put your hands behind your head and you think about it for a while. That's meditative or a spiritual form of reading. Um, and again, Barb and I were talking about that this week, and let me give you a good one. Psalm 16, the last verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, there's a verse of Scripture to kick back and put your hands behind your, your head and meditate on it for a while. In your presence, there is... Well, we were talking about the significance of having God as a father and how difficult that can be for some of us. But you know what? Put your hands behind your head and think about this. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. A promise from God. Um... Also along the same path, uh, path of thought, I, and I know I've mentioned it before, Isaiah 53.6. I don't know how many of you are fans of Handel's Messiah. Um, 
there's a lot of short, not real short, but choruses. Some of them are four minutes long or so. And he does Isaiah 53, 6. And it starts out, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And it's kind of flippant, kind of a tra-la-la down the garden path of uh, wilderness. You know, all we like sheep have gone astray. And then it goes to... <laughs> um, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Handel takes that meditatively on him. And repeats it eight times. It's meditative. Over and over again. On him. On him. On him. The iniquity of us all. That's a meditative approach to scripture that. I'm not putting down exegesis at all. We need to do that. But we need to blend that biblical study with the spiritual reading of scripture also. You can't we can't do one without the other. Well you can, and it's dangerous. If we champion exegesis, we get into conversations about who's the better author on the covenants. Um, what do we see about covenants in Deuteronomy that maybe we don't see in the New Testament? I'm just making that up. This sort of thing. And and we can bury ourselves in discussion and seeking to understand the, the finer aspects of biblical studies and forget that what we're, what we're called to do in Scripture is to be in a relationship with our Father. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Exegesis is essential. Yes? Yeah, an analogy sort of just came to me. Would you say that the distinction is, say, an exegesis, discussing and enjoying the recipe of a meal, what's inside, what's contained, how it breaks down into parts, versus sitting and feasting on what it is, the actual meal is, and chewing on it, not devouring the meal and getting and leaving, but tasting each of its intricacies, slowly enjoying what it is. Sure, and that slowly enjoying, I think, is a nice way to put it. One, one in the back to the introduction to Sons in the Sun, um, where he speaks of the filial fidelity as he studies adoption in the writings of Paul. And one of the things I thought of when I was in school studying speech and hearing. There was a time, I don't know how far I'd get on this now, but there was a time when I could sit down and schematically show you how, for hearing, how acoustic energy impacts against the eardrum being converted into mechanical energy in the bones there, and then into wave energy in the inner ear, which stimulates the hair follicles in there that move into the eighth cranial nerve becoming electrical energy. This is fascinating. (laughs) It is. It is really fascinating that you're here, your ear can hear the wind in the trees, but also a 747 without being destroyed. Now, it can go too far, 
but there's this wide range of hearing that we're capable of. Now, you can look at that scientifically. Or as Charlie was suggesting, there's also a way of looking at it worshipfully. This is what God has done. This is amazing what God has created for us with the hearing mechanism. I think with spiritual reading and exegetical reading, we can do the same thing. We can come to it as a child of God, seeking to know our Father better as we study the significance of the covenants. That make sense? You're looking at me, but I... Okay. <laughs> well, it makes sense to me, and I'm happy. So, all right. Uh, uh, just finally, there's this thought... And I think this actually came at the end of Mary's visit. Oh, where is it? It's not. I wrote it down, but then it disappeared. Uh, essentially, the thought of as, as we engage in spiritual reading and exegetical studies, let it be done unto me. Uh, how is what does she say at the end of the visit? Let it be done unto me, or even as you... Come on, help me out, you guys. Do you know what I'm talking about? Was it Mary? Yeah. Let it be done unto thy servant. Something like that. Yes. That's our approach to Scripture. It should be, anyway. Let it be done unto me, uh, as you say. Um, that's what we're after in biblical study and in, and in reading. Okay, we've got yeah, about 10 or 15 minutes, and I, there's a couple of things that I wanted us to, to uh, look at and share amongst each other. Um, I know that some of you really enjoy the art and the science of Bible study, and I know that there's some of you that really enjoy spiritual reading, uh, let's do this as small groups first. I was just going to open it up to everybody. Um, but let's do it as small groups first. Uh, just getting your little groups there. And the question is, what, what are the differences that you see in your own personal life uh, between the art and science of Bible study and spiritual reading? Okay. If you understand what I, if you don't understand what I mean by the difference, we can continue on that track a little bit. But do you understand what I mean by the difference between spiritual reading and? For right now, yeah. The art and science of what he was talking about, learning how to do exegesis, exegetical studies, and reading scriptures spiritually. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Spiritual reading. Are you scribing or uh, no? You got the notebook back there? <laughs> I tried to count your question. Okay. 
Now, <clears throat> I know that the young folks back there have really great eyesight, so they can read it from there. But if you can't read it, you know. Yeah. All we like sheep have gone astray. I'm going to give you about five minutes so that we can get back and talk about it. Okay, time's up. I know you're just getting started, but, but, yeah. Okay. Uh, Sean, let's start with you guys this time. Just a second. While you're umming, um, <laughs> I divided up into small groups, and then you guys share what you had. Uh, if if any of you others, while Sean is talking, want to engage in what Sean is saying, by all means, do it. You don't have to just yeah. So. Sound effects. Sure, I'm ready. Charlie?
seeing. It's what you said was an observation you're observing. And uh, the analogy that I came up with was, was when you either you, you read a poem, you're not breaking each thing down. You, you, you like you love the poem. The poem causes affection to start up within you. You like the sound of it, the words, the rhymes, the different parts of it. And you might even just be reading it to yourself. Um, or, or, or a letter. How do we read a letter from someone whom we love who is a bar? Right? You're not questioning their preamble or how they close. You read it longingly. Um, you're excited about it. And again, that there, there's an aspect of the destroying of the affection, I think, in the spiritual or meditative. Okay. Yeah. Were you scribing over here today? Yes. Okay. stages in our lives um, where we may our, our style may be different. Um, any other comments? Like uh, when you're raising kids, sometimes you spend time with kids that are sort of getting stirring their hearts as more simple bodies. A wrap-up thought before we go over there. Leads, leads to what? Doxology. You ever heard that, that quote? Yeah. No, but that's kind of what I was suggesting if they're done together. Otherwise, it's just cold exegesis, and I'm increasing my knowledge of Scripture. And, yeah. Doxology? Dox? Worship. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just think, you know, obviously we always tend towards two extremes, right? There's, there's people who say, you know, who 
start a Bible study with, what does this passage mean to you? Because you never ask me what it means to God. Right? And then there's the people who are, what does it mean? And they never really wrestle with what it means for them. And I guess, I would, to use food as an analogy, you know, there are those who say, it doesn't matter what you eat as long as you eat. You know, what do you have for breakfast? You know, fruit loops and a Snickers. Well, you're going to die. But it it, it would be equally deadly to to prepare a perfectly nutritious meal and then never eat it. To know all the science of nutrition and yet never consume it. As long as it's outside of you, it doesn't be good. You must have a good meal and it must be in you. We must rightly understand the word of God, but we also have to have it in us. I like that. I, I like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 What, he, what he said. Yes. Yes. You've got. You can prepare the meal, but you better eat it. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think too. Did you have something to say? Okay. Sort of. And I think that there's a danger in there, too. He referred to the doxological aspect of it. And even when we're studying scripture, it can be about me. Even spiritual reading can be about me. But scripture is God's testimony about himself. And that's where it should always end up back at. Any grammarians here? I just, yeah, I never end a sentence with a. A preposition is something you should never end a sentence with. I like that, what he said. Yes, yeah. Okay. For, for, for next week, actually, what I had hoped to do is get the pastoral staff involved in a discussion of which is more significant in our approach to Scripture. Um, how we listen or how we read you know what's the how do these two aspects of of being into the word impact our daily lives maybe we can maybe you guys ponder that might come up next week but for next week just one quick assignment the remember the beginning of all this was what does it mean to be in the word And what I'd like you guys to do is to think about synonyms, either I'd like them to be scripture if if possible, but they don't have to be. What are other ways of saying or speaking of being in the word? What does that mean to be in the word? And I know I have given the example before, just so I'll share one anyway. Again, from Psalm 119, I will run in the way of your commandments. To me, running in the way of your commandments is another way of saying I need to be in the Word. If we just talk about I need to read my Bible, yes. <laughs> but along with what we've been talking about here today, again, there's the spiritual aspect of it. Pondering the significance of on Him was my guilt laid. 
on him. Uh, or in your presence, it's eternal joy. Uh, and so we, we need to learn to see our lives as more than just, I need to be reading my Bible every day. Okay, there's, there's, there's more to it than this. So come with some synonyms for what it means to be in the Word next week. David, did I hear something? Would you like to close a prayer? God, our Father, we are so thankful that um, you give us your word and uh, 66 books that contain all that we need to know for living and for how to be saved. And I pray that you would help us as we explore ways to read and study your word, to internalize it, to make it uh, part of our lives, that you would guide us by your spirit and that it would cause us to grow spiritually and together as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.